Amen. Wasn't that great? Thank you, choir. Thank you, praise team leading us so well in worship this morning. And I want to continue that spirit of worship by uh, going to God's word. Acts chapter 26 is where we'll be this morning. And for those of you who uh, may not know me uh, just yet, my name is Tim Sperduto. I am the discipleship pastor here at uh, Trinity Baptist, and I'm excited for the opportunity to open God's word with you while uh, Pastor Nate is away. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 26, let me just take the opportunity to say on behalf of uh, myself and and my wife, Rachel, and uh, Casey and Jackie, thank you so much for last Sunday evening and for the uh, just for the blessing that you all were to us during the reception, your generosity and your, your blessing was uh, so, so much appreciated and we were very thankful for you all. We love being a part of this, uh, this body. We love being a part of this family. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 26 as we continue our way through Acts. Only a couple more chapters to go. This morning, though, we're going to touch on this idea that I think we find here in the chapter of the gospel-touched life. What does that look like? What are the implications of a life that is touched and transformed by the gospel? Now, they, they may still do this, but if you're, if you, I guess you're at least my age, you probably remember the old uh, Midas Automotive commercials on TV. Do you remember those? They, they always had uh, like a little slogan at the end that went something like, trust the Midas touch. You remember that one, right? Trust the Midas touch. Well, of course, that Midas touch, it comes from old stories of legendary King Midas of the ancient Phrygian uh, empire. And the, the myth says that due to some kindness that that uh, King Midas had shown to a companion of the Greek god Dionysus. Well, this, this Dionysus offered to King Midas to give him any wish that he desired. And so as King Midas thought about it and he, he went back to Dionysus, he, here's, this was his wish. He asked that whatever he touched would turn to gold. You remember that story? So he began trying this out, right? He touched an oak twig and it turned to gold. It was glorious. He touched a a stone and it turned to gold. He grabbed some of the roses in his rose garden and all the roses turned to gold. And he thought, this is great. What could be better, right? Except he didn't didn't factor in something. His, uh, King Midas' daughter was upset over all the beautiful roses in the garden turning to gold. And when he went to console her, and he touched her, his daughter turned to gold as well. Now his plan didn't seem so good anymore. Of course, this is just a mythical story, but it's a story of how the Midas touch transformed everything that he came into contact with, everything that he touched. And now, of course, this transforming touch, it had a really sad and and tragic ending, but this morning, I want to talk about a different, more glorious, better transforming touch. I want us to talk about the gospel touch, or maybe I put it this way, what happens when the gospel touches a person's life and completely transforms them from the inside out? Do you know that touch this morning? Have you felt that touch? 
We've seen this throughout the book of Acts. If you've been paying attention from the very beginning, we saw this at Pentecost, didn't we? The gospel is proclaimed to all of these people who had gathered together in Jerusalem and 3,000 people hear the gospel, they're touched and they're transformed by it. In chapter seven, Stephen, you, you, you see him boldly witnessing of the gospel, witnessing what Jesus has done in his life, even to the point of death. What, what happened? What, what gives him that boldness? It's the gospel had touched his life and he was never the same anymore. We saw this time and again with jailers and eunuchs and centurions and just regular old people like you and me, city after city after city. The gospel touches their life and it changes everything about who they are. They're never the same anymore. We even saw this in the life of a zealous Pharisee by the name of Paul, didn't we? We saw that it, it, the gospel completely transformed his life. Now, we've heard of Paul's conversion story. We've heard his call from Jesus more than once already. And, and he, he seems like he's looking for opportunities over and over to share his story. He wants people to hear it. He wants people to know Jesus. And of course, why wouldn't he? Something radical has happened, hasn't it? Something has changed his life in a radical way. What happened is the gospel touch has killed off, quite literally, the old Paul. And now he's been resurrected into this brand new creation in Christ. This is what happens. Every time the gospel takes root in somebody's life, it changes them, kills off the old self, resurrects a new person in Christ. I mean, isn't that exactly how Paul describes the the transformation in his life? I think back to Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Dead man, crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, resurrection. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that's an amazing story, isn't it? That, that's an incredible account of Paul's transformation. But what's more incredible, what's more amazing for us this morning is this. That story, Paul's gospel-touched life, it's not some weird anomaly out there. It's not something that is the exception in the history of the way God has redeemed people. No, this is a story that can be and should be duplicated in each one of our lives. It should be our story. And so I want us to think about that as we read here in Acts chapter 26, as we take a deeper look at at this account. At the beginning of chapter 26, we're kind of picking up from last week where where Paul is gonna have audience with another high official. He's gonna be giving his, his story, his testimony, if you will, before King Agrippa. One more opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And so that's what he does. And that's where we want to pick up. We want to, we want to pick up this account in Acts 26, beginning in verse 4. So would you stand with me for a moment as we read verses 4 through 12 here in Acts chapter 26. Again, he's before King Agrippa and Paul says this. My manner of life from my youth 
spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to, or if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word this morning. We know that it is your spirit working through your word that changes our lives. And so we ask this morning that your spirit would do a, a great and mighty work that can only be attributed to you in our midst. Would you change lives? Would you recommit our lives to the mission that you've given us in Christ? We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we, as we address this idea of the gospel-touched life, I want us to consider three aspects of this gospel-touched life, three ways that the gospel is at work in us. And the first is this, as we see here at the beginning of the passage, the gospel transforms us in the hope of Christ. The gospel transforms us in the hope of Christ. Now, if you've learned anything about the Apostle Paul up to this point, you know Paul was a passionate guy, wasn't he? I mean, he was, he was deeply committed to what he believed, whether he was right or wrong, depending on the season of his life. But he was a passionate and committed guy. Now, part of that is just being a Pharisee. They were, they were a zealous bunch. But Paul goes above and beyond. He takes it further than most. In verse nine, he says he was convinced he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was committed. He was, he was sure that this was wrong, and if it's wrong, then I need to be 100% fully against it. And what that meant for Paul was locking up Christians, it meant persecuting them, it meant pursuing them, it meant punishing them, it even meant on occasion casting his vote to put them to death. The world has no need of these followers of Jesus. At least that's the way it used to be for the Apostle Paul. That used to be his life, but then something happened to Paul. Something stopped him dead in his tracks, and he, he describes it as this light from heaven. And out of the midst of this light, there was a voice, and the voice was the voice of Jesus, and it says basically, Paul, I'm going to give you a new purpose. I'm going to give you a whole new identity, a new purpose for your life. But before we get to the, to the purpose, there has to be gospel transformation 
Oh, Paul's zealous for his faith, but it's the wrong faith up to this point. There needs to be gospel transformation. And even though Acts doesn't explicitly tell us, Galatians 1 does. In Galatians 1, 11 and 12, it says that Jesus gave Paul the gospel message. He proclaimed it to him. He gave it to him in revelation. Now, probably on the Damascus Road, that's where he's, he's getting this revelation. The text doesn't tell us, but either way, Jesus gives him through revelation the gospel message of what Jesus has done for sinners just like Paul at this point. And what happens is the gospel changes his life. And he, he describes it in terms of, of a new hope. It gives him a, a new hope. So, so now when he says in verse six, my hope is in the promise made by God, what he means is my hope is in this hope of God that God raises the dead. He had an old hope in an old way of, of viewing God, but now through Jesus Christ, he has a new hope, a new hope that believes God raises the dead. First, he believes that God raised Jesus from the dead. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, he has taken all of us who have confessed our sins, repented of our sin, he has raised us from the dead spiritually. But it doesn't even stop there. He believes that one day, one glorious day, there's gonna be another resurrection, a bodily resurrection when we're glorified and we're with Christ forever and ever in eternity. You see, church, the resurrection, Jesus and ours, the resurrection is foundational to the gospel message. It's foundational to what we believe about Jesus. Here's the deal. If there's no resurrection, then scripture tells us we're still dead in our sins. Paul says, something's changed in my life. I'm no longer the same. I believe in the hope of a resurrection and it is foundational to who I am now. Hope matters. Faith in the good news of a risen savior transforms everything about our hope. Here's a sad reality. So much of the world around us, they don't have the same hope we do. They don't have the hope of Christ. They place hope in things that can never save. They place hope in themselves. I believe in me. When I used to serve overseas, that, that was the, the common response that I would, that I would get about, about faith or hope. They would say, I believe in myself. I don't think it's any different here in America. People believe in themselves, or maybe their hope is in some kind of government or some kind of government leader. Here as we come up on our next midterm election cycle, I know there are a lot of people out there who are putting all of their hope in who sits in a particular office, who rules in a particular place. Maybe our hope is in other people, heroes that we look up to, key mentors in our life. People put their hope in all sorts of things, but I'm convinced that a lot of people out there simply have no hope at all. Here, here's what I'm getting at here. There was a, an article a few months ago in uh, Self Magazine online, and it, was, it caught my attention. It was interesting because it said basically what I'm saying here. It says some people don't have a source of hope that they can immediately point to. No hope. What's, what's your hope in life? What's your hope for eternity? I, I, don't, I don't know. 
I don't really have a hope. So we, we can understand that, I think, very clearly. But the article went on to say, in those cases, this, this doctor that's being quoted in the article, she says she asks her patients to do an inventory, asking what sources of hope their friends, family, or larger culture draw upon, and if the patient can borrow from that source as well. In other words, here's what she's saying. Here's what she says at the end here. Can you share, can you share that with them or get some hope vicariously through them? Now, wow, that's a new one for me, vicarious hope. Like you don't even need your own hope. You just, you just need to have a couple of friends or some family members who have hope and say, I'll just kind of borrow some of that. I'll borrow a little vicarious hope. Here's what I want to say this morning though, friends. Vicarious hope is no hope at all. A, a hope that, that is only found in someone else for you is a useless hope. It won't do anything in your life. It won't change you. It won't conform you to Christ. You see, you and I need something better than that. We need a hope of the gospel. We need a hope that Jesus' death and his resurrection alone can secure in our lives. And here's the good news this morning. Scripture tells us you don't have to get that vicariously through someone else unless that someone else is Jesus himself. We can have that hope. All people through repentance and faith can have that hope. Trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross gives us that hope. And you don't even need some kind of crazy, blinding Damascus Road experience. All you need is the experience of God's grace to repent of sin, place your faith in the finished, complete, once for all work of Jesus on the cross. You do that, you have hope. You see, that's the critical first part of the gospel touch. But it doesn't end there. You see, this is just the beginning. I said it's the first part. When the gospel transforms our hope and gives us a hope in Christ, that's merely the beginning of what Jesus wants to do through you and me. You see, we need to get ready at that point. When the gospel changes us, it's gonna call us to a glorious mission. We see here, secondly, in the text, the gospel calls us to the mission of Christ. The gospel calls us to the mission of Christ. Now, by the time we get to verse 16 here in Acts chapter 26, we've got Paul here recounting exactly what Jesus said the mission is. Paul, I've got something for you. Something altogether new here. And here's, here's what he says in verse 16, Jesus talking to Paul. He says, rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Wow, there's, there's the mission. There's the purpose. 
Now, I don't like, I don't know about you, but I, I'm the kind of guy who, who doesn't like vague instructions in life. If I've ever had a, a boss, I, I'm like, just, hey, give me, give me clear instructions, right? Now, this, this plays itself out every once in a while in, in my family. Now, Rachel has learned over the years to completely bypass me in the process, but there were times earlier in our marriage when she would say, hey, I have to be gone. Can you cook supper tonight? right? Some of you guys are having cold sweats, right? You know what I'm talking about when that happens. And she's like, all you got to do is X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, that's not all I got to do. There's a lot more to it than that. I need some detailed instructions. Don't just tell me, add a little bit of salt. I don't know what a little bit is. And I don't know if you mean that iodized salt or that kosher salt or the sea salt or whatever other kind of salts you have up there in the cabinet. I have no idea. If I'm going to do it, I need clear, detailed instructions. Man, you understand what I'm saying? You, you get that? All right. That's the way it is. That, that's how it has to be, right? Detailed instructions. So one of the things I love about the mission that Jesus gives to Paul and to us is he gives it clearly. It's not vague. Very, very specific. Very clear. He, he doesn't say, hey, go give these lost people out there some kind of a pep talk to get them through the day or maybe get them through the next week. You know, just, just say something nice. It's not what he says. There are a lot of Christians, a lot of churches who do something like that, but in the process, they leave out the saving good news, don't they? Now, what Jesus says to Paul, and again, this applies to us as well. He says, here's the mission. You're going to be a servant and a witness to what you've seen and experienced. That's it. You're going to be my servant and you're going to be a witness. What has happened to you, tell it to others. If, if, if we've been transformed by the gospel, right, if our hope is now in Christ and what he has done on the cross, let's not overcomplicate things. Let's just tell lost people what Jesus did in our life and you can't go wrong. If you're saved, it'd be hard to mess that up. Jesus is telling us, just give lost people the same good news that saved you, right? Because he's gonna, he's gonna use it, he says in verse 18, and here's what he's gonna do with it. When we're obedient to proclaim that message, he says, I'm gonna use it to open their eyes, to open the eyes of lost people so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. To what end? What's the goal? What's the aim here? What are we, what are we ultimately aiming for? It's, it's that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. You see, church, Jesus has absolutely called us into a relationship with the Father. He has absolutely changed who we are from the inside out, but he absolutely hasn't stopped there. He's called us to a mission because there are millions and billions of lost people out there all around us who are still in darkness. And let's be honest and use the words of the text. They're still under the power of Satan. That's where our world is. When, when we see the world act like the world, when we see the world act like they're under the power of Satan, let's quit getting angry and upset and start understanding they're just acting like lost people. And that's what lost people do. And what, the, what they need, the solution, is not our frustration and our anger. The solution is the hope of Christ, the good news of the gospel, 
and how he's changed our lives and how he can change their life. You see, they need the gospel touch because they need to be forgiven and sanctified. Paul understood this urgency. When he heard it from Jesus and he heard the the gospel and he heard the mission, oh, he understood it. He says in verse 19, he says, oh, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. There's too much at stake. He understood the task. I was not disobedient. That's Paul. The question for us is, what about you and me? Are we being obedient? It's one thing to come together in worship, and we should. It's one thing to sing and to hear God's word and have private devotions on our own, and we should. But are we obedient to the mission of taking the gospel to the lost who are in darkness and under the power of Satan. You know, I was looking up, trying to understand our city a little bit better. I've lived here, you know, a whole one month uh, up to this point. And so I thought, well, what does Amarillo look like spiritually? And as I was looking through some of the statistics out there, uh, basically I I had a a grim understanding of where we are, probably not so different than many places here in in our country. But it said that one-fourth of the population of Amarillo has an evangelical affiliation. And what I mean by evangelical is they believe that the Bible is our final authority, that the gospel alone, what Jesus did on the cross alone can save, and that we must tell lost people to repent and believe the gospel. That's the basics anyway, right? That's what it means to be evangelical. And so what, what I came away from that with is this, this sad understanding that three out of every four people you come in contact with on any given day, they still desperately need Jesus. Don't ask them if they're a Christian. They'll probably say yes. The reality is three out of every four people you meet, they need Jesus. They need the gospel touch. They need their spiritual eyes open. They need us to be obedient to tell them how they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith. This is what the world needs. They don't need our political ideologies. They don't need our best guesses on how we could solve the world's problems. They need to know how Jesus solves the world's problems. And I guarantee you, it's the gospel. The gospel transforms. It calls us into Christ's mission. Now, I know, I know that's intimidating for, for a lot of people to think about, man, here it is, another one of those, another one of those messages about I got to go tell people about Jesus. And I don't, I don't have the confidence to do that. I don't know if I have the boldness to do that. I don't know if I have the courage to do that. Well, listen, a lot of people will say that. They're not sure they have what it takes to be a gospel witness. But I want you to see the third thing that the gospel does here in the text. The gospel empowers us with the help of Christ. Do you know that? The gospel empowers us with the help of Christ. So check out the boldness that we see here in the rest of chapter 26. Paul is going on and on about what Jesus has done in his life, how he's called him to be a bold witness and a servant of his. Then verse 25, uh, he even rebuts this accusation of the governor when the governor says, Paul, you're out of your mind. He says, no, it's never been more clear. It's never been more obvious to me. And he continues and he says, It's all about Jesus. 
What we need is Jesus. Verse 26, he goes on and, and he's, he's proclaiming, he speaks boldly to King Agrippa. That takes some courage. It takes some boldness to do that. He even calls the king to believe and he's so bold and his boldness actually catches King Agrippa off guard. And he kind of jolts him a little bit and he's like, oh, Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's like, Short time, long time, it, it really doesn't matter to me. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So what is it, church, that gives Paul such boldness here? Before governors, before kings, before other religious leaders, what gives him such boldness? Is he just uniquely gifted? Is he just like a, 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 a once in a, in, a, in a history of the world kind of guy? That's not how scripture presents it. The answer has to be no. You see, back in 20, verse 22, Paul tells us where the boldness comes from. And it's not himself, by the way. He says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Paul, how are you so bold? Where's this all coming from? I've had the help that comes from God. I've had, I've had the spirit of the living God dwelling in me, giving me boldness, giving me words to speak. And, and not only that, in, uh, in, in, back in verse 17, he remembers that, that Jesus promised to deliver him from his own people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles. He was gonna deliver him from all of these people. They can't touch him. Can't take his life anyway, at least until it's Paul's time to receive his reward. Paul knew, why fear when I'm quite literally invincible until Jesus determines it's my time to receive my reward? And then we've got a win-win scenario here, don't we? This is only a win-win situation. So church, maybe... Maybe what you and I need more than the latest, greatest evangelism program, maybe what we need more than clever words or, or the, the perfect words to say or the best tearjerker testimony, maybe what we need is simply a greater vision of the glory of Christ that will lead us to a greater trust in the promises of Christ. This is where our boldness comes from. It's always been the key to boldness. King David, even back in the, in the Psalms, he understood this. In Psalm 27, he said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? Those are rhetorical questions, by the way. If Jesus is Lord of our life, if his spirit dwells in us, whom do we have to fear? Christian, here's the key. And I want us, to, I want us to take this with us here this morning. The longer you gaze upon Christ, the greater your boldness for Christ will be. The longer you gaze upon the goodness and the glory of Christ and what he has done in your life and what he continues to do, the greater our boldness will become to tell other people. Don't believe me? Try it out this week. Try it out. 
I think Martin Luther, the great reformer Martin Luther, he, he understood that. He had a great boldness and a great trust in, in Jesus Christ. And it was actually 505 years ago tomorrow that he nailed his famous 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church doors. It took boldness to do that because he knew what was coming. He knew what was coming as soon as he did it, but, but he couldn't help himself. He had to. There was a gospel message to get out there. Four years after that particular event, he stood trial at the Diet of Worms before King Charles, the Holy Roman Emperor. You don't get a bigger audience than that. He's on trial before King Charles himself, and King Charles commands him to recant of all that he's been teaching. He's, basically, he says, abandon the biblical gospel or else. And Martin Luther famously replied, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. That's boldness. You, I mean, there are consequences to saying something like that. And if he hadn't been kind of kidnapped on his way from the, from the audience with the king, he was gonna be killed. And he knew that. There's a boldness there. Church, what is it that brings such hope and bold mission focus into the Christian's life. I want to suggest very simply, it's the gospel touch in our life. It changes everything, not just the outside. It doesn't just modify our behavior. It changes us from the inside out. It conforms our heart into the heart of Christ. It changes everything about who we are. It's the power of the gospel touching and transforming the heart of repentant sinners. That's that's what makes the difference in our lives. So I wonder this morning, the gospel clearly touched and transformed Paul's life, but has it changed your life? Has it, has it transformed who you are, where your hope is? Has it transformed the, where, the, the way you give your time, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your energy for personal, selfish pleasures? Or is it more and more for the kingdom of Christ? Is your eternal hope in what Jesus Christ alone has done through his death and resurrection? We're gonna have a time of response here in just a moment as we sing. And uh, I, I wanna invite you if, you've, if you've not made that commitment to Christ, if, if your hope is in something else or in nothing else today, can I share with you how you can have hope in Jesus Christ? through turning away from sin and trusting in what Jesus alone has done. I'd love to share that with you during our time of response. For others, this may be a time to recommit to the mission that Jesus has given us. Maybe, maybe it's just become a little too familiar. We've heard this message over and over. Maybe we need to recommit. Re Refocus to become intentional about this mission. Maybe we need to Pray for that boldness that Paul had, that Martin Luther had, to go tell people how they can have hope in Jesus. Others may simply need to come pray. Maybe you need to grab somebody alongside of you. Maybe you need to come to one of our pastors up front. Uh, we would love to pray with you. Whatever your response is, though, would you not leave here today before you respond to how the Spirit is moving in your heart? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, your word, sometimes it's, it's a hard word, but it's a good word. 
And I know that even as I preach this word this morning, I know it's, it's convicting. And it, it, it goes, it cuts deep because I know I'm not as obedient as I should be. Your gospel has transformed, but is, but is, it, is it empowering me for bold mission? Father, I pray this morning that you would do a work that only you can do in our hearts. For some, it's, it's going to mean salvation. It's going to mean a new hope in Jesus. But for others, it's going to mean a recommitment to the mission that you've given us to be servants and witnesses of the gospel. But Father, whatever that response needs to be in our hearts, help us to make it here as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?